0: This is Musically Speaking, a new show from KVCR on the campus of San Bernardino Valley College. Musically Speaking is hosted by me, Margaret Worsley. Today on the program, we'll talk to Paul Locke from the San Bernardino City Unified School District about his work with young people in the community and the drum corps scene in Southern California and beyond. But first, we'll speak with Dr. Nicholas Bratcher, Assistant Professor of Music at Cal State San Bernardino and author of a new book titled Rainbow Jukebox, a concise companion for LGBTQ music studies. Dr. Bratcher consistently works with composers, arrangers, and performing artists throughout the country on new compositions and wind literature. He is also an active guest conductor, clinician, and adjudicator across the United States. Since taking the helm at CSU San Bernardino, the Symphonic Band, under Dr. Bratcher's direction, was recognized in 2019 as a finalist for the college university wind band performance in the American Prize National Competition for the Performing Arts. His ensemble was also invited that year and accepted to perform at the inaugural Emerald Isle Wind Festival in Ireland. His research and teaching interests include conducting pedagogy, wind band literature, minority wind band composers, music fraternal organizations and their impact on student leadership in college bands, the effects of music education on the academic performance of minority students in inner city settings, African American music studies, and LGBTQ plus music studies. Dr. Bratcher, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you give us just a little bit of background of where you're originally from and how you made your way out here to Cal State San Bernardino?
1: Oh, okay. Sure. Um, I'm from a small town in South Carolina, Conway, South Carolina. It's about eight traffic lights from Myrtle Beach. So (laughs) that's our claim to fame, and it's uh, home of the Coastal Carolina University Chanticleers. I started my undergrad career at South Carolina State University, which is a historically black college in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and where I was majoring in music education. After my second year, uh, due to some... um, complications with family and and having uh, one of my family members have to go through a surgery. I transferred back home to Coastal Carolina and I finished up there and uh, also did my master's in music education um, from that institution as well. And then I took a job at Savannah State University as assistant director of bands and stayed there. Started my doctorate at University of Georgia and trekked my way to the state of Iowa. (laughs) where I took a teaching position at the University of Dubuque. While I was there, I started an adult wind ensemble called the Julian Winds, and with great success with them, um, we were able to perform at Carnegie Hall in 2018. And uh, in 2017, actually, I took the position over at Cal State San Bernardino. Slowly made my way across the country from the southeast to the Midwest and now to the west coast.
0: And we're so happy you're here, and I hope you stay forever. (laughs) (laughs) You've recently published a book, Rainbow Jukebox. Can I ask why did you write this book and who did you write this book for?
1: Um, I actually just felt a need for it. Uh, The idea came about while I was actually here at Cal State San Bernardino. We were originally under the quarter system and the entire Cal State system had done this initiative of moving from quarter system to semesters. And during that time, there was a push for you know new coursework to be added if, you know you felt the need to do so. And so I said, well, you know, we don't have an LGBTQ music studies course, and there's so much for that particular course that can be added." And so I wrote the course uh, proposal and it got approved. And so I started teaching the course the first year we moved to semester system, which was fall of 2020, which, was during the year of the global pandemic, and so it was taught online, although my original intent for it was to be taught face-to-face in a traditional setting. Um, And then as I was teaching it, you know, a lot of the the resources came from sources I had found and PDFs and through, you know, my own personal knowledge and experience and interviews I had had with colleagues who had lived through some of these events. And I realized there just wasn't a textbook for it. And when I was looking for, you know, textbooks to potentially use for the class, I could find literally none. And so I said, well, you know, I'll just I'll just write one. There's Rainbow Jukebox. So (laughs) that is the culmination of that. (laughs) How it started. How you got here. That's
0: that's awesome. I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Bratcher, professor at Cal State University San Bernardino, and author of a new book, Rainbow Jukebox, a concise companion for LGBTQ Plus Music Studies. Dr. Bratcher, I love that all of the references, the examples you use, and the images throughout the book feature LGBTQ plus figures. Or allies. I saw Harry, Prince Harry and Duchess uh, Meghan Markle in there, too. Um, But there are a lot of images of artists, and that feels intentional. Why would you say it's important for people to see these images of historically gay or trans figures in a music history book?
1: Um, Because, you know, representation is important. And we work in a profession, especially when we look at classical music, where that's traditionally been dominated by, you know, white male Europeans. And so any time that we have the chance to show diversity from that is a welcome opportunity, especially living in the region that we live in and teaching the students that are about to be future music educators, future performers, future composers that, you know, don't look like white European males but still necessarily want to see that they can succeed in these areas. Um, And not just from an ethnicity standpoint, but also from a sexual orientation standpoint or a gender identity standpoint. You know, there are people who are succeeding, um, who have succeeded in our field, who are LGBTQ and continue to be so. And there are more that are identifying themselves or, um, for lack of a better term, coming out. And, and living in their truth, you know, today. And I think that's just indicative of the times. It's just important for us to have that representation.
0: Mm-hmm. The book is really entertaining. <laughs> there are features like listening activities and sidebar sections, which you call the tea. Yes. <laughs> it feels like you had a lot of fun writing this book. What influenced your style and approach to this text?
1: I was actually just trying to figure out how I wanted the the text to look I had seen a lot of textbooks that deal with music history that are just text only there's no pictures there's no referencing you just have to just kind of read and I had one of those going through my undergrad where my music history book was literally just text throughout the entire book is it was the grout actually and it's just like, oh my gosh, Like, is there a pictorial reference that I can use? And that's what I wanted to stay away from. I did not want a textbook of just text. And I also wanted activities to where, okay, I'm talking about these elements, but then I want the students to be able to listen and kind of hear them. But instead of going back and using all of these, you know, Western classical examples, use music that they're familiar with. And so the first part of the book Chapters one through six is pretty much just like a musical elements type of thing. So they're learning about, you know, melody and harmony and form and style and rhythm and how to listen effectively. And we give them examples for that. And so they're able to go and some artists they will see um, and know, like Elton John. um, And some it will be like that their parents grew up listening to, such as like the B-52s. or they may know, like, Lady Gaga or Lil Nas X or whatever the case may be. And then the second portion of the book, so I guess chapter 7 through 18, are the kind of historical components. And so that split into, you know, discussion questions dealing with that just to kind of make them think about things and then listening examples of songs from artists during that time that they can identify with and say, oh, this is what was being played This is what was being performed during that time. Um, And I guess the T is, I guess, my own colloquial take on things. Uh, The T is a term that we, uh, in the LGBTQ community, identify as the truth. So when we say, what's the T? We're looking at the actual letter T, but it's been used as like sipping tea. So it's like, that's tea, that's truth. Uh, Or you're pouring tea. Spill the tea. Spill the tea, (laughs) you're telling the truth. You know, you're giving the facts about things. And so. That Those are kind of like what the ins and outs of. Like when we talk about um, the pansy craze and McCarthyism, this is what was really going on. And we talk about things like prohibition and people are like, well, you know, prohibition was just the out loud, uh, the selling of, you know, alcohol in these places. It's like, well, why did they do that? though? What was the real reason behind it? Or with McCarthyism, what was the real reason why, you know, people who identified as LGBTQ were paralleled with communist type of thinking. Um, and so just using the sources there to kind of give the students some kind of relevance to say, oh, wow, this is what was going on during that time. You know? Mm-hmm.
0: You're know. you listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. My name is Margaret Worsley, and I'm associate professor of music at San Bernardino Valley College, talking today with Dr. Nicholas Bratcher assistant professor of music at Cal State University, San Bernardino, and author of a new book titled Rainbow Jukebox, a concise companion for LGBTQ plus music studies. This book is like a history of jazz, history of rock, history of hip hop, and North American music appreciation perspective combined. There are major figures celebrated that the general public has known about for a long time, like Freddie Mercury of Queen, Melissa Etheridge, Elton John, But your book beautifully features more unknown figures that are influential to music history. I learned about Chris Williamson, Tashi Reagan, Larry Levin, um, and so many others. How challenging was it to find these LGBTQ figures over the course of history when I would imagine not all of them were out?
1: Um, It wasn't the case that they weren't out. It was the case that they weren't listed or you know, publicized in history books, um, and one of the one of the things that you know, as someone in academia, that you do is you know you want to cite your sources. And when I was going through and looking through these sources for information on these artists, for example, when we talk about Storyville, which I think is chapter seven, and we talk about the jazz era during that time, it's very easy to find stories and biographies on Jelly Roll Morton. Um, because during jazz in new orleans he's listed as one of the prominent professors which you know is a is a really great piano player and the slang term that was used to refer to them during that time but in interviews jelly roll morton would say that the one person who was probably better than he was was tony jackson who was an openly black gay male during storyville times in new orleans louisiana um, which at that point was really unheard of. And so finding things on Tony Jackson is difficult, especially since, you know, he never formally recorded any albums. And so finding, you know, original recordings of his music is nigh impossible. But, you know, it's important to feature, you know, artists like himself. So I guess it wasn't challenging finding the artists because they weren't out. More so, it was challenging finding them because they are not being distributed for mass consumption like their heterosexual counterparts.
0: Yeah, for the historical record. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I learned so much, including information about the Stonewall uprising in Greenwich Village, New York in 1969. Can you describe a little bit of that situation and maybe some of the positive repercussions it led to for gay rights?
1: Yeah, so um, Stonewall was, I guess, kind of a lead up or a result from nightclubs and bars and other places where, you know, LGBTQ people could freely meet and be themselves and gather. Um, And this had been happening since, you know, the end of, you know, World War II. You know, when that particular war was over, America had had the idea of what the middle-class family looked like and anything that deviated from that was you know frowned upon and shunned and so um it got to the point to where you know if you were openly gay or transgender then you know your music didn't get played you know you weren't hired for gigs um Again, this is during that McCarthyism era. You could be fired from your government job with, you know, great paying benefits because your mindset seemed to run parallel to that of a communist. Mm-hmm. And so it had just snowballed up into the point to where, um, and of course, in Greenwich Village, you also have the the mafia control and things of that sort. Um, and so they're paying, you know, police to just kind of stay quiet about things during that time and you know with them now owning several clubs including one of them being stonewall um you know that particular evening the police were not you know bribed (laughs) enough and the bar owner was not tipped off and so there was a police raid of stonewall Uh, i think people see stonewall as this great civil rights moment But at its very core, it was literally just people at their last straw of, you know, them trying to take away one of the few places that were left where they could go and be themselves. And that's how the Stonewall Riot erupted. And so you have these several key figures that come up, like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who, amongst several others, are kind of credited as being like the key figures of that riot, From that, you get, you know, your first gay pride parade, the Christopher Street Parade, which happens in 1970. Um, All of these uh, organizations like the Daughters of Bilitis and um, just all these gay rights organizations that come about to fight for this. Now there's something, there's a fulcrum, so to speak, to fight for these rights because it stems from this riot. Uh, The 70s and the 80s were just... A mash with civil rights because, you know, five years prior to Stonewall, you had the civil rights movement um, for African-Americans. And then in the 70s, you get the disco movement where, you know, clubs are open again, music from LGBTQ, black and Latino Artists are being played in nightclubs by gay DJs um, as well as women of color who pretty much dominated disco during that time. Um, You have, you know, the women's music movement that happened with Chris Williamson and the Michigan Women's Music Festival that all stem as a result of what happened during the Stonewall riots. And so, you know, it's it's one of those major events in history. Um, that occurred, as well as the rebirth of, you know, Broadway. Uh, I think um, in 1926, I think there was the musical, not the musical, a theater play called The Captive that dealt with two lesbians. And after that, essentially, there were not any LGBTQ theater productions until The Boys in the Band. That happened in 1968, which was the year before the Stonewall riots. And then after that, you get this explosion of, you know, Queer-centered, you know, theater and musical theater as we see it now. And so um yeah, Stonewall was a was a pivotal point for that.
0: I'd like to reintroduce our guest. I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Bratcher about his new book, Rainbow Jukebox, A Concise Companion for LGBTQ Plus Music Studies. Your book does a wonderful job of tying historical happenings with the music. One example I'm thinking about is Bill Clinton's 1993 military policy, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which essentially trickled down into local and state governments as well as to religious leaders. And many LGBTQ artists in the 90s balked at coming out because of this social pressure. You wrote about uh, Ricky Martin starting straight and he eventually comes out. Do you think musicians still need to essentially prove their worth before they're allowed by the industry to be open, or are things changing?
1: I think for the most part, things are changing. Um, there are some genres of music where, you know, it is just still a cardinal sin, uh, metaphorically, to be LGBTQ. Um, and I and I speak on things like hip-hop and rap, um, where it is very, very masculinity-dominated. Um, and it has been since in its inception. Um, slowly but surely that wall is breaking with some of the newer artists that are, you know, coming of age. And of course the audiences as well. Um, and just the way we ingest music now, uh, you know, in the nineties, and the early two thousands, you know, you still had to go into a music store to buy a CD or a cassette. If you remember such archaic <laughs> uh, music devices and- <laughs> And now, you know, artists are able to bypass, you know, the recording contract, so to speak. They can put their music out on Spotify and YouTube and build their own fan base. And, you know, so long as it goes well for them, they can, you know, market themselves and, and, you know, kind of break their way into that own piece of that industry. And so I think, yeah, it is changing. For many genres. For most genres, uh, yes. For some, um, particularly rap, hip-hop, and even, dare I say, country music, um, it is still very much a a heteronormative genre that still needs some, some work as far as that's concerned.
0: Mm-hmm. In the book, you do touch upon old-school religion of, of a god and some beliefs that condemns homosexuality, which has then yielded to anti-gay positions in the black music industry, but you also point to something beneath that. I love this quote you say, but it's not just about the church, it's also about a toxic limited concept of black masculinity. Masculinity robbed by enslavement and harmed by centuries of racism. We are clearly still recovering from slavery. Are you hopeful for black masculinity and where it will go and possibly how it can grow moving forward?
1: Yeah. I think, I think to answer that, yes, I am. And I think also you, you have to be at this point. Um, And again, like I said, things are, things are changing um, to where I think people are a lot more open-minded and are being a lot more progressive. And I also mentioned that, you know, in, in a recent study I think during that time, I think one in five millennials during the year 2014 identified as LGBTQ. And now it's down to one in three. So, you know, I think that we are at a turning point to where seeing gender as a social construct, as opposed to just seeing the person for the person is going to be the thing, just seeing people as who they are, as just people. And, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of healing to do from from um, our country's mistakes and, and past. But I think that we are slowly but surely moving in the right direction.
0: Dr. Bratcher. Yes. <laughs> Did you know October is LGBTQ History Month?
1: I did not know that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are there any special events or rituals, maybe movies or show you might be participating in this month to celebrate?
1: Um, as far as movies to watch this month, I think that if I could recommend maybe, just for the for the culture, if you have not seen Paris is burning, that is always a classic. Um so Paris is burning, a great documentary on the, uh, the, the ballroom culture and scenes there. Um, uh, FX has a wonderful series out called Pose, if you have not seen that, with uh, MJ, Taylor, and Billy Porter, and a host of other fantastic uh, actors and actresses. Um, and there's a reality show on HBO Max called uh, Legendary that actually features... Um, ballroom culture in a kind of like a competition, so to speak. And I think that the mainstream culture also has, you know, seen um, things like RuPaul's Drag Race and Drag Race All-Stars, things of that sort. So uh, there's a lot that's out there, but uh, I would I would invite you to, um, you know, just kind of take a moment and grab some popcorn and dive in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You're listening to Musically Speaking on 919 KVCR. My name is Margaret Worsley and I'm talking today with Dr. Nicholas Bratcher. So I've got a couple of uh rapid fire questions if you're privy. Okay. Shoot. <laughs> Who inspires you, musician or non?
1: Oh wow. Those are how to rapid fire questions. Uh, <laughs> um let me see. Wow. Um inspirationally, I like uh Jackie Wilson. Um just I know he's not your typical classical musician however just his uh his showmanship and his technique and his dedication to the craft is inspiring um especially during the time where he was you know prevalent billy Holiday is another is another musician that inspires me just just passionate about their craft and let me see benny goodman is another one um I'm a clarinetist but um Benny Goodman was one of those musicians during the swing era where um he he garnered the respect of many people of color because a lot of his band musicians were people of color and when he went to tour they said hey you know you have to replace some of your band musicians or else you can't perform here and then Benny said well you know I'm not just I'm just not going to perform there um and that was something that he did not have to do but you know just a lot of other musicians would not have done that had they been in his position um I grew up on a lot of motown, so a lot of, a lot of those singers and and musicians um inspire me as well so it's it's just yeah, there's a lot
0: cool. who do you listen to when you're driving?
1: ooh, uh, there's a lot of those too, so I listen to a lot of older. Older things. So I listen to a lot of uh, Aretha Franklin. I listen to Donna Summer and Diana Ross. Um, I'm a kind of like a disco junkie. So I just quiet as it's kept, but now it's out there in the public now. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, let's see. I'm a huge Pentatonix fan. I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, I've seen them in concert twice. Uh, there's just something about you know the rawness of acapella music and and just the challenge and difficulty of it that that's alluring. Let's see, uh, Alex Newell, uh, who's a gender non-binary artist, and actually on the cover of the book on the bottom left there. Uh, Queen, uh, Van Halen, just lots of artists. Is I pretty much just put the playlist on shuffle and then just let the traffic do the rest. <laughs>
0: For our friends who don't necessarily listen to or watch a lot of wind ensembles but are interested in getting into it, where would be a good place to start?
1: NPR would be a great place to start. Um, Also, iTunes surprisingly has a lot of collegiate and professional ensembles who have recorded. So, uh, University of North Texas, University of Texas, there's the Austin Symphonic Winds, the Tokyo Kosai Wind Orchestra. North Shore Concert Band, uh, up in, uh, Illinois, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wind ensembles that are, that are recorded now. And of course the, uh, Eastman Wind Ensemble, uh, which is probably, you know, the gold standard. Um, so, uh, just start there and just take a dive.
0: This isn't a fair question because I know who your partner is, but what's your favorite thing to cook? <laughs>
1: What's my favorite thing to cook?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh my goodness. Uh my favorite thing to cook would probably be anything seafood related. Uh growing up on the East Coast, uh that's that's just kind of my go-to. It's quick and not a lot of preparation involved. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely not the uh the chef in the relationship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing for you. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm, I cook for function, and and he cooks for taste. So <laughs> we go for that.
0: That's a good combo. Do you have a favorite rock band or hip hop group?
1: Um, let's see. So again, yeah, Pentatonics would be my favorite group. Uh, just because of uh who they are and the diversity that they represent with them. As far as uh hip hop group is concerned, Outkast. That was Like my childhood, um, Outkast, The Fugees. um, I still will forever be a Lauryn Hill stan. Like that is, I would say, top five greatest albums of all time, in my humble opinion. But yes.
0: (laughs) I've been chatting today with Dr. Nicholas Bratcher. Assistant Professor of Music at Cal State University San Bernardino and author of a new book titled Rainbow Jukebox, a Concise Companion for LGBTQ Music Studies. Dr. Bratchert, thank you so much for joining us today and for writing this much-needed book. It has been an honor speaking with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You'll find links to websites and other information you've heard in this interview on our program page, kvcrnews.org forward slash speaking. We have to take a break. But when we come back, we'll speak with Paul Locke from the San Bernardino City Unified School District. I'm Margaret Worsley. You're listening to Musically Speaking. We'll be right back. You're listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Margaret Worsley. My guest is music educator Paul Locke. Paul is currently a program specialist in the San Bernardino City Unified School District, where he runs an after-school music program. He is also a drill designer for the Riverside Community College Marching Tigers and has worked for the Blue Devils Drum and Bugle Corps. When we're not in a pandemic, Paul judges various marching bands and winter drumline events throughout the western U.S., Paul, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start just with a little bit of your background, um, which is eclectic. Um, You are part of a dynasty of marching arts, being the son of Gary Locke, who's the now retired marching band director of the RCC Tigers. So clearly you grew up in the thick of all things band. Um, Was there ever any doubt you'd carry the torch or carry the drumstick Um, with your career? Did you contemplate accounting or STEM fields, or were you just destined for music?
2: Funny story. When I was a kid, my parents would ask me, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, well, I don't want to be a high school band director because I want to spend time with my family. And my first job was a high school band director. (laughs) In college, I contemplated maybe going into business, something with more money. And I I met with my uncle and aunt, who are uh, a very good uh, business people in the world and uh, after talking to them I thought about it and I, and I was my passion has always been music and, and entertainment really because uh, my parents were in a rock band in the 70s. And no so way. I was following them around to all their gigs and in the summertime um, two years we lived at the Marriott in, in LA across from the uh, LAX airport mm-hmm. and so I was about I don't know eight or nine years old for eight weeks living in a hotel, I just felt like, you know, my parents were stars. And so they were playing in the club there every night. And and I just thought it was so cool. They went to Disneyland on the weekends. And I was uh, with them a lot. And there's all these tunnels underneath Disneyland. And and they were on the stage. It would rise up right next to Space Mountain. And I was always watching them perform there. And my dad was a drummer. And so I was always watching him. So when I was in third grade, my dad was like, hey, would you like to play an instrument? Like, oh, yeah, I want to play the drums just like you. So Aww. he started teaching me. And um, got into drum set pretty pretty early and it was just kind of a passion early on and seeing them entertain. And they weren't just like the typical rock band that would just play music. They would make it an entertainment, almost like a Vegas show. They would bring in antics and jokes and costume changes and all sorts of things. And uh, I just thought it was just so cool. I was like, okay, well, this is definitely my destiny. And I don't know when that triggered, but definitely, you know, I was a music major right away in college, but it affirmed it as I went through college and de- debated maybe going different directions. And it just, it was meant to be.
0: Yeah, that's phenomenal. I, I can't help but think that that type of entertainment, that type of interaction, that type of fun has influenced who you are and how you teach?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, It was, it was never necessarily about the subject, just about connecting with people and making lives better and, and directions for people because, you know, people that go through the music programs are not all going to be music majors and make music their entire life, but it makes them a more interesting person and appreciation for the arts and, and uh, just makes it so that they have connection to other people, too. I think a lot of music students, even in high school, have a lot of friends from their high school years that they're still connected to because of music, whereas a lot of people move on and they lose track of everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in college as well, you know, we just have a lot of lifelong friends through music.
0: Yeah, it it can be a great connector. You do wear many hats, and we're going to talk about some of those today. I'd like to talk first about your affiliation with RCC and the Blue Devil uh, Drumming Bugle Corps. Um, RCC and Blue Devils, are those organizations connected?
2: They are connected now to some degree. It hasn't always been like that. So the Blue Devils drum and Bugle Corps is up in Concord, California. I worked for Blue Devils. I, I marched into the drum corps back in 1990. And then um, I worked as a visual staff member the next year with the Blue Devils, Blue Devils um, kind of took over RCC Indoor Percussion a few years ago, and I work with the staff at RCC Indoor, writing their their package and their uh, and their staging and whatnot. And so RCC is a separate entity, but is connected to Blue Devils because Blue Devils kind of took them under their wing for their RCC Indoor Percussion program. Gotcha. In the last maybe five years or so.
0: Okay, just indoor.
2: Just indoor, correct.
0: I was gonna ask, is this typically a seasonal situation? Is, what's the calendar like for drum corps?
2: Yeah, so drum corps starts usually in the fall. They have auditions, get cast members. They start rehearsing starting probably January all the way till June. And people can be living all over the country and be part of Blue Devils drum corps. And there's numerous drum corps all around the United States. And then in June, usually they move into Concord, California for that particular drum corps. They start practicing daily, 10 to 10s, they call them, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day for a few weeks and oh get their gosh. show put together. Then they start traveling in the United States to compete against other drum corps. And the tour, might, you might have a short tour in the beginning, maybe two weeks, and then another tour later on of three or four weeks. And, and this, these days, it all ends up in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. Um, where they have their finals. And it's, it's a drum corps international, sponsors the whole thing. And last summer was much different because of COVID. The previous year canceled everything. Last year, they did not have judging. They just had people come out and entertain, which was very successful for everybody. Everybody loved it. Uh, but now they're going back to their, their original kind of uh, situation this next year. So that's the season for drum corps of basically October through August.
0: Okay. So what what time should uh, students out there who are interested in joining kind of get their ducks in a row? and?
2: Yeah. So in the fall, you know, September, October, November is when everybody's, you know, sending in videos and, you know, every, so much is done online now. It used to be you send in a, a videotape or you have to go in in person and do that. So, yeah. So you're figuring out where your skill set is because there's drum corps of all levels. You know, Blue Devils is kind of like the top level where they're usually top three every single season. There's other ones that are more in the, like the top 12, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then some that are just hoping to make it in what we call finals, being in that top 12. And so everybody kind of stops, starts somewhere. You can you can do this until you turn 22, and then you're done. Um, you sort of move on and graduate out and let the, the new, new blood come in.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Um... Do you audition for like once or do you have to kind of pick a core like how would Well,
2: some people will audition for multiple multiple cores and then they're offered contracts to be part of it and then they have to decide and okay. you can only be in one. And you know, a lot of people see these cores and they're amazing. It's like professional level. But they're paying thousands of dollars to participate. It's like $3,000 to do this in the summer. Wow. Um you're living on gym floors most <laughs> of the summer in a sleeping bag, you know, depending on your your uh, outfit, you might have a nice, you know, blow-up mattress. And some people, it's just, when I did it, there was no blow-up mattress. It's is a flat <laughs> wood floor in and, and, and the thickness of my sleeping bag.
0: You're like, I'm paying for this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but back when I did it, it was like $700. I mean, it, that wasn't much. Now mm-hmm. it's quite a bit more. Oh, Insurance, it... liability, and everything.
0: Oh, okay, I was thinking about like the extravagance of the shows now too. That, that just...
2: too, absolutely. I mean, back in my day, we had very little props on the field because I marched back in '89 and '90. And now, if you've watched some of the shows, I mean, it's it's a Las Vegas production on on a football field.
0: Let me take a moment to reintroduce my guest. I've been talking with Paul Locke, music educator and drum corps drill design master. Many of the musicians I've talked to they accredit their experience of drum corps as being one of the most profound and influential to their music careers. And I think it's this entity that isn't talked about a whole lot mm-hmm. in musical circles, but it could be such value to young people.
2: Yeah, there's something about drum corps because you're putting your entire life into it. I mean, in the summer, that's all you do. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else going on. And the goal is always perfection. You know, you're never going to get perfection, but your goal is always that perfection and, and doing something perfect every single time or at least close to it and being consistent where, you know, you can get away with just your your concert band at high school, you know, doing pretty good and doing the rhythms pretty close and the, the notes pretty much in pitch. You know, it's, it's all it's very vague where it's you're, you're aiming for such precision in drum core, It overlaps in your entire life because everything you do, you're trying to have that same precision you know, with whatever it is, whatever career you've decided to do. I mean, in drum corps, you'll see when they're not on the field and they're in, in the stands relaxing, all their instruments are lined up perfectly mm-hmm. because it matters. Like mm-hmm. everything matters. Just like you hear people talking about, you know, make your bed when you wake up. Do something that you've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing, you're, you're always trying to accomplish it with a high level of success and not just, yeah, I went to class. Yeah. Did you listen? Did you learn anything? Did you write it down? Did you remember it? Like when you go to work, yeah, I was there, but you know, I was a little tired. Well, but what did you do to get out of that? You know,
0: mm-hmm. so
2: that that's where drum corps. I think really everybody who I've met that have have done it for you know a full year or more, their work ethic is very very high, and it overlaps into everything that they do. Most of them that I've I've met, my friends, are very successful in whatever they chose to pursue.
0: Yeah, that's totally inspiring. Um, You have an extensive background working with young adults um, in the marching arts, uh, but you're also presently teaching for the San Bernardino School District and have for a couple of decades, right?
2: Yeah, I started back in um, 2000, and uh, I was an elementary teacher for 18 years, and then I stepped into a new role about three years ago. Uh, Before that, I taught high school for five years and middle school for three years, and then i have been working at Riverside City College uh, my parents have retired, but I'm still part of the program. I design the drill and, and go and work with the students and the staff, and, and I love it. It's And it's a nice way to bring up my creativity in, in that part of my life, which I really, really enjoy.
0: Yeah, and you are clearly good at it. You've been doing it a long time. It's your bread and butter. I think that's that's amazing. Um, what do you love about working with a younger crowd? Um, are there pedagogical elements that are more challenging or maybe more fun?
2: Yeah, you know, I love every level on just different ways. When I was teaching elementary, I just loved how they know nothing really. You know, they're just, it's just a clean slate, a white, white piece of paper. And to see electricity going through their brain and little things just snap like, oh, it's like, you know, you're working with somebody for the whole year and you don't see any progress, and all of a sudden something clicks. And the sparkle in their eye and then wanted to come back, you have, I'm sure you, you've been in education a long time too. And you have students come back and you're not real sure sometimes the effect you've had on them. And I've had students come crying to me like how much I meant to them. like, And I was like, oh, I was just trying to get the best out of you. Like, oh, it changed my life. And so um, the, the younger kids were just really fun to see them fall in love with something that's so important to me. And I know it's not for everyone. So if a year passes and they were the wrong instrument, then I, I encourage them to try something else. Or maybe maybe it's not for them. And that's okay, too. Maybe they need to find something else in sports or theater arts. But something, you know, something that makes you want to, to work harder that day, to get to school on time and, and not just go and kind of, you know, do your thing and, and not get anything out of it. Because you, you get what you put into it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I love I love those those younger kids. The middle school kids have a lot of energy. And if you can channel that energy in a direction, I mean, the sky's the limit. And it's, it's just a, it's, it's a challenge at times as we all know those, you know, 11, 12, 13, four year olds are going through puberty and things are changing in their bodies and things are kind of going crazy. But They have so much energy and excitement too. So uh, I have a drum line that I run here in San Bernardino for middle school students. I'm actually recruiting right now at all the middle schools to try and get them involved. And uh, and that's for anybody. anybody who's it could be somebody who's never played an instrument before, or it could be somebody who plays a trumpet but is interested in the activity and just kind of getting involved. And and uh, then the high school students, you know, they're starting to find out who they are, and that is so much fun too. You know, where they find a passion, they keep coming back year after year, and they're growing and and maturing. And then they're they're sending them off. And one of my um, former students from a couple of years ago, we're trying to hire him now to be one of our instructors, and to see kind of that change too, and change from student. Um, teacher to colleague, colleague kind of relationship, and them giving back to the program, and then with RCC indoor, it's like now it's like a drum corps level student. They're they've they're they're in college, but they're at that level where they're ready to like really commit to this precision, like we talk about in drum corps. It's very similar, just not as extensive as far as living with that group of people for two months. You can still keep your life going with with the percussion program, and and uh, it's just it, it's it's wonderful to be around people that top of their game that makes you have to work harder to, to bring something to them that, that makes them be a better person so you know how that's in college too because now you've got students who you know like it, it, some things they're equal or they know more than you on certain things but you maybe are a little wiser so you're trying to connect with them and so you know all levels have their perks I think.
0: Absolutely. I love that. And that can be contagious, too. Oh, that yeah. kind of work ethic. Yeah, yes. you know.
2: yeah, it is contagious. Yeah. Sometimes to a fault. Uh, it's free decor, <laughs> unfortunately
0: or fortunately. Yes. You're listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Margaret Worsley. My guest today is music educator Paul Locke. I got to ask, as a music educator with COVID canceling literally all public performances, did you stay busy with writing drill? Did you get into virtual performances? Um, were there side projects you found yourself catching up on? What was that experience like for you?
2: There was no drill. Um, So yes, I moved into the virtual world. And so in our district, we created showcase music. So we created four levels for choir, band, and orchestra. And I quickly learned how to use Final Cut Pro (laughs) and Logic Pro to be able to edit music and sound and video. And I've always been interested in video. I've loved making family videos and uh, you know, compilation videos for my dad's 60th. So that was my, my first big video. I'd made videos for my, my daughters when they graduated high school. And for all the groups that I do, I try and make a highlights video to you know show a compilation of what we did for the season. And But Final Cut Pro is like a much higher step than just iMovie, which is very simple. So we had numerous videos from all over the district brought in that I edited together. You to alone edited them? I did. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, in my role, because I wasn't having as many rehearsals and all that so i did it so yeah i did 12 different videos and a couple for the district like highlighting um, middle school and high school and the visual performing arts Um, so i i kept busy with that and i really enjoyed it you know i did sit a lot so i'm not moving as much but i enjoyed it Um, and then you know i you mentioned other hats one of my hats is magic and so we did that virtually too so we started doing virtual magic shows for Friends and eventually performed for the Magic Castle, um, which was really exciting for us. A couple of magicians and I have a business together. We can get into that later if you'd like to. Um, so yeah, I, I I kept busy because I I'm never still. I I I struggle sitting doing nothing. <laughs> Um, when I vacation, that's when I do nothing. But other than that, I'm always moving. And luckily, my wife uh, supports that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: does she try and catch up with you? or she Sometimes she's like,
2: uh, you go. I'll, <laughs> I'll stay back. But she, she does really well. She has a lot of energy, too.
0: Yeah, I know. That's really fun. Um, going back to this virtual experience, um, did you find there were skill sets your students could actually focus on more clearly or in a different way than the normal in-person setting?
2: Um yeah, I guess um, it, it, it was harder to get information to them. I think on camera, students got a little bashful, you know, with, with submitting videos, it wasn't a requirement, it was an encouragement. And so we would have loved to have more people participate, but mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you've ever videoed yourself, but I did it too, because I did some projects with some of my students and I was hard on myself. I had to keep doing it over and I was just never happy. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could see where students with with not as much experience as I do playing my instrument, go, I'm not sending that to anybody. I don't want anybody to hear me play because you could just hear you. You know, mm-hmm. when you're an ensemble and you're growing in the ensemble, you can kind of get away with like, okay, it's us. But when it's just you in the video, I think that made it really hard for a lot of students. And all of our programs have gotten a little smaller because of it.
0: Well, Yeah, that is unfortunate. And it's one of the beauties of playing in an ensemble is you can... You can kind of fail forward. You can mess up in a group and that's okay. And you just, you know, learn as you go. And there's a little wiggle room for mistakes. But we don't have, like you said, we don't have that when we're recording ourselves on camera. And what
2: I was trying to to tell them when I was like for my percussion program, I was like, do whatever you can because I can edit out the mistakes, (laughs) you know. But they're still really hard on themselves. And like they still don't maybe believe that or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. are too prideful on what they're doing. So... Yeah, uh, it was a struggle sometimes.
0: Um this is supposed to be a music show technically and but it's KVCR <clears throat> where you learn something new every day. So can we please talk about some magic? Yeah. <laughs> um you evidently and I did a little digging on the internet, you were directly inspired by Harry Blackstone Jr. Yes. who is an IE legend, right? Yes what was that experience like when you were first introduced to magic either by him or someone else and and kind of what got you into it
2: so it started with just watching it on tv seeing specials and doug henning was a big magician back when uh, we were kids uh and he was all kind of the hippie kind of guy and rainbows and and uh, that sort of thing and and i just thought it was so cool and my parents were so supportive they they recognized that i loved it and so they found ways to bring it to me so we would go to live shows we saw harry blackstone jr perform in claremont we saw doug henning in in person and then we would have some parties sometimes for new year's eve and they would hire magicians to come and perform in our living room and sometimes i would be involved in that performance somehow where there was some sort of illusion and then sometimes the the magician would help me learn some smaller tricks and teach me some things and i just sort of fell in love with it early on and it's again it's about performing it's not even necessarily the magic it's entertaining people and and getting laughs and people excited what you're doing and so it's just like music Um, and so music was much higher on my party list but magic was a sub thing my whole life Uh, but then you know as you go into high school you get busier and busier and then college and then first career and eventually um, I had a family and then family broke up got got divorced and so all of a sudden half the time when I didn't have my kids I had all this time and I saw another magic special and they, they showed this video like, hey, you can buy this video and learn these card tricks. I'm like, oh, that was so cool. Because <laughs> when I was a kid, I just had like a little kit I got for Christmas. And I learned all the tricks and we do like birthday parties. And but it was all just we call cheesy stuff, you know, uh-huh. just nothing really high caliber. Now I'm an adult. I started ordering these videos and I started practicing magic like it was an instrument. I was practicing four hours a day and there was all these sleight of hand card tricks that I was learning and it was like, like playing a note perfectly in tune with perfect intonation, with a good release, a good attack, and like consistently every single time. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing, <laughs> but just applying it to pick up this card, move it over here, like it looks perfect and it does this and, it, and you use it in this trick. and. So I just kept doing that. And all of a sudden, I started developing some skills and some tricks, started showing it to people. And they're like, wow. Like, so shows would come up, meet other magicians, become a member of some clubs, Magic Castle in Hollywood, if you're familiar with that. Yeah,
0: I was just going to ask. That's awesome. So you're a member of Magic Castle. Yes,
2: I've been a member since 2003 and now performing. I've always performed in the club, sort of in, they have a bunch of various rooms, but now me and my my partners, we did a, a, li- a show on online. So now we can say we're actually performing members at the castle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing there if you've never gone. Have you been there before?
0: I haven't. I've heard so much about it. I would love to go at some point. It just seems like an incredible experience. Yeah,
2: everybody dresses up, and um, there's, there's wonderful food, any kind of drinks, And then numerous rooms of different types of magic, close-up magic, and we call parlor magic, kind of small room magic, and then actually big illusions as well, and a theater, and then everything in between and other members performing, and it's just a wonderful experience at night. And they're finally now open again with normalcy, whereas, you know, they're kind of doing everything virtually for a long time and then slowly kind of opening a little bit, but now they're fully back.
0: Oh, that's so awesome. I love that. I'd like to take a second and just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Paul Locke. Paul is a music educator, drill writer, and magician. Um, So clearly you are a lifelong learner. Yes. Uh, Can I ask what you're learning right now, whether that's a magic trick or a musical instrument or technique, a foreign language, what are you learning these
2: days? That's a good question. I'm sort of probably in between learning things. The most recent thing that I learned was playing the steel drum. No way. Yes. So a few years ago, our VAPA coordinator before the current one we have right now, his name was Kevin Philippi, and they wanted to start a really great program at the school. They just didn't know what. Said, we got some money. What do you want to do?
0: Sorry, VAPA. What does that stand for? So
2: VAPA is Visual and Performing Arts. Perfect. So basically our boss. um, And so a colleague of mine started a, a piano experience at his elementary school, And I decided to start a steel drum band at my elementary school. But
0: you didn't know how to play steel drums. Did not
2: know how to play. (laughs) Okay. But I had seen it. So through RCC Indoor Percussion, when we would go out to Indianapolis for our championships, we would go to this one school in Richmond, Indiana. And they had steel drums elementary through high school in their whole district. And one lunch, we went and watched the high school do a um, performance for us. And I was like, man, that is so cool. Yeah. Like, uh, that's awesome. It's just the sound. It's just fun. It makes you want to be on vacation.
0: (laughs) We need that for the Inland Empire. (laughs) I know, yeah.
2: So um, when he asked me, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to start a steel drum band. So I started one at the elementary school at Palm Avenue Elementary School, where I was teaching at the time, and it's still going now. And it's a before school program where I invite anybody who'd like to participate, come in, and I just teach them by rote. Now, when the staff there heard about it, like, oh, can we play? (laughs) Well, sure, let's start at a faculty group. So once a week, we also do a faculty group. And there, some of them play other instruments. Some have never done anything. And so I arrange music for both of those groups. So oh, meanwhile, so cool. I'm having to learn. So I'm going to some, uh, I went to a, a week-long seminar playing steel drums in Denver two summers in a row. And I just fell in love with it. Like, okay. I started teaching some of my music teacher friends. And we would just hang out and play. Okay, I got to buy a drum now. So I bought a drum. Well, I got to upgrade my drum. So I bought a better (laughs) drum. And so now I have a still drum band. It's called the Twilight Palms. Cool. And we have about three hours of music we can play. And so I love playing. And recently I added my father into the band. So he's playing drum set. And a bunch of my friends who are former teachers here in the district are playing. And uh, my mom is a singer. She's like, I'd like to sing. So we're working on getting her kind of intertwined into the band. And so that's kind of my latest... Endeavor.
0: That is so rad, and your parents are back in a band in their golden years. Yes,
2: (laughs) it's awesome. We we practice in the in the in their driveway, and what's funny about that is when I was a kid, they were practicing in the garage in a rock band mm-hmm. you know in the 70s and so I was outside dancing with my friends while they're practicing and then I'd go to their gigs I thought it was so cool and now like I'm the guy in charge and my dad I'm, I'm asking him to do certain things <laughs> it's it's just it's great
0: um I've got a few rapid fire questions that you know sure. you can just go through real quick and you can answer them in a word or two um first one is who inspires you musician or non
2: mm. I'm gonna come back to it, okay? No Something problem. will pop in my brain.
0: Okay, no problem. Um, who do you listen to when you're driving?
2: I love Sting. Oh. It's one of my favorite artists, and I wish he would do more albums. But I love listening to Sting. I love the multimeter that a lot of his uh, songs are in. I'm not a lyric guy. I'm a music guy mm-hmm. I love, and a drummer, so I'm listening to the rhythm and the chord changes and things like that. Whereas lyrics, you'll ask me what, what the song's about lyrically, <laughs> I have no idea. But I love the song because of the rhythm and all that. So I listen to Sting a lot.
0: That's cool. Probably one of my favorites. Yeah. I love his textures. It's, yes. Yeah. Um, for our friends who don't necessarily listen to or watch or go to um, drumline br- drum events or drum corps events, where would be a good place to start for them?
2: Um, Well, we have a Southern California organization called SCPA. And that's Southern California Percussion Association, I think, is what it stands for. And they're like our top circuit in Southern California. And so you could go there and see where they're having shows and go to watch them. That's where I would start.
0: Uh, What's your favorite thing to cook?
2: I have this family guacamole that everybody knows about. So anytime that we go to an event guacamole is my thing and it started with my mom's mom my grandmother and she's from England and it's very unique guacamole a good friend of mine my one of my magic partners is like it's not guacamole <laughs> it's avocado dip is what he says oh. so the interesting thing about it is there's avocado obviously there's sour cream diced green chilies and the interesting component is cottage cheese
0: mmm interesting
2: very interesting lots of salt and pepper it's amazing Okay. my favorite chip to go with it is a Cool Ranch Dorito. Oh, I love Cool Ranch. Yeah, so we'll definitely have to have you try that sometime. It's amazing.
0: You kind of already answered this. Do you have a favorite rock band or hip-hop group? You mentioned Sting.
2: Yeah, um, I love Imagine Dragons. They're one of my favorite newer bands. I love Coldplay. Um, Love the Beatles. I was actually named after Paul McCartney. That's where I got my name from.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, that's awesome. Um, Do you wanna go back to who inspires you, musician or non?
2: You know, actually uh, a good friend of mine, his name is Sean Vega. I've been working with him for the past 20 years at RCC and he's amazing. He's uh, an amazing salesman on any any idea he has. And he's a, he works for Con now. He just stepped down from RCC just to be uh, with his family a little bit more. And he inspires me with um, just his work ethic, his outlook on life, his positivity. I mean, people just flock to him because of his being, his 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 aura. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are certain people you're around that just like, man, you have it. You know. And so he's definitely somebody that I always look up to.
0: Ah, oh, that is awesome. Well, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about what you're up to? Uh,
2: well, we didn't get to the, our, our drum lines here that much. So maybe just um, my main job now is getting middle school and high school students from all around our district to be part of this percussion program, whether they uh, play an instrument or not. And um, we meet twice a week and very proud of what we put together uh, with, our, with our groups. That's great. Where do you meet twice a week? So we meet at Chavez Middle School. And that's where everything kind of began way before I got involved. Um, It's up past Cal State San Bernardino up um, in the northern part of San Bernardino. And that school is awesome. They've been very supportive because they basically are sharing their campus with us. We maintain a good relationship with their custodians, their secretaries, other teachers to make sure if we can give back to them, we do. But uh, yeah, that's where we meet that's
0: wonderful it's wonderful for the community obviously it's amazing for the students and it sounds like you have a good time too
2: yes <laughs> it's not work it's play
0: <laughs> yeah that's so great well thank you so much paul Locke, for your time it's been a pleasure having you in the studio today thank you very much paul Locke is a music educator drill writer and as we found out a magician we'll be posting links of some of these organizations of which paul is involved with on our website Thanks for joining me for the second episode of Musical.ly Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. You'll find this program on the fourth Saturday of each month at 7 p.m. and 3 p.m. the following Monday. This episode will be posted on the program page on our website at kvcrnews.org forward slash Musical.ly Speaking. Thanks for listening. I'm Margaret Worsley.